Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Burris. Now, Guy Saxelby. This guy was a successful chartered accountant prior to founding his own business. Now, that business is now called Early Trade. When he happened to be on a, a trip to New York, got stuck in a blizzard. By the way, I got stuck in the same blizzard in Chicago in 2016. That particular blizzard actually gave him a pause to think about what would eventually become his new career. Now, as an accountant, Guy saw firsthand the strain that late payments could put on a small business. If they weren't paid on time, they can't hire, they can't invest, they can't buy the things they need to grow their businesses. And we all know the whole story about cash flow constraints for small businesses. So he came up with an idea to connect suppliers with corporate clients on a platform in a marketplace and to allow them to offer discounts for early invoice payments. Guy's mission is to fight for little businesses so that they can get the same benefits that big businesses have always had. And now over 36,000, that's right, 36,000 businesses use the early trade marketplace for managing their cash flow and their working capital. I'm going to ask Guy about how he managed to build the largest early payment marketplace in the Asia-Pacific region, but also I want to talk to him about how he can turn chaos, whether it's either in a marketplace or actually in his own mind, into something hugely beneficial for a community of people and, more importantly, for himself. So, let's get into it. Guy, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Now, when I was reading the brief, I see that uh, I'm having a guess now. You're probably maybe 30 to 35 in that territory. You're a pretty young fella. 32. Perfect. I got it right on. And where are you from? Where are you born? Sydney, born and raised. Sydney, born and raised. And uh, what did your mother and father do? Mum was a nutritionist. Dad was an engineer. That's why your skin looks so bloody good. You've been eating well all your life. No, I spent four years in the UK, so I didn't get that sun damage. You didn't get the sun damage? You're not looking at my face when you say that, are you? No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So uh, now, Guy, I'm always curious and we all want to know why, how did people actually get into business? And when I was reading the brief, I see that you're 32 years of age now, but I see that when you're in your younger years, you had parents both working, you know, one's an engineer, one's a, prof- uh, a professional as well as a nutritionist. You wondered to yourself, I wondered myself, what was the influences that were on young guy? So what did young guy think when he was at school? What did, where did young, young guy go to school for a start? Well, I, I went to school in northern suburbs of Sydney. Right. But what was the pressure on your school? Like, I mean, did you feel as though as a kid, oh, shit, I've got to do something for mum and dad, I've got to do, I've got to become a lawyer or a, 
engineer or something like that. What was in your head? Yeah, they had high expectations. We yeah. had that drilled into us from an early age um, and they would just say, you know, we expect big things of you because we know you've got potential. Is that uh, how many, your brothers and sisters? I've got one sister. One sister. So, I mean, because a lot of people don't get this. I mean, like, I mean, we, we talk to lots and lots of, um, in our audience, business owners, and I don't think they realize, I mean, they all, they look at, you grew up in the Northern Beaches, they're probably going to, Northern suburbs of Sydney, they're probably going to say, oh, yeah, rich kid, blah, blah, had it all. Um, maybe you, you might have got brought up in a better middle class than, say, a lot of other people, but what people don't realize is there's a massive pressure on kids from that sort of milieu. When you said, now I'm, I'm asking you, maybe you don't want to say this, but did you feel as though there was pressure on you to perform in a professional sense when you left school or even at school? Look, I'm, I'm sort of slightly different, I'd say, than someone normally who'd always been performing and trying to deliver up to the expectations. I actually buckled earlier, um, you know, and, and kind of rebelled against any of that conformity, um, you know. What does that mean earlier? How do you mean? Well, look. You start robbing cars or something at 15? No, look, I wasn't, you know, I got into um, fair, my fair share of mischief. Um, I changed schools, had a few issues, you know. I started a private school and then I, I changed out of there and moved to a small Catholic school. And um, the conformity that certain schools have on you can actually put a straitjacket. I felt like I was in a straitjacket. So I needed to express, I needed to do my thing and run my own journey. And so I kind of made that decision to change schools myself from the private school to a Catholic school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was be- it was better for me. And then when I got out, I kind of had more freedom to really just decide what I wanted to do. And so I like business, I like psychology, I like people, um, and I wanted to study something that was worthy of a university degree. So I studied finance, economics. So, but uh, that, that's pretty unusual when you're you're young enough. Now, still to remember that time, I guess th- thirty-two. You can remember back to when you when your laddie is at school. I I can't, that's for sure, but you can, and it's interesting that you made a decision. Um, I would never been able to make this that decision at that age. Um, I should leave the private school system and go into another school system, in order to sort of gain some freedom in the terms of the way you think. Or is that what you're talking about? When you what, what are you talking about? I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in my early teenage years. You identified years. that? You could identify that? Oh, look, I think other people identified that through my actions. Um, you know, I was I was getting into trouble, was very distracted and um, just wasn't hanging with the right crowd. And so I think, that, you know, the decision eventually was made for me to move. I was sort of pushing that decision for a while. What's that mean you were distracted? Look, I wasn't engaged at school, to be honest. Like I, I was smart, but... Were you bored? Uh, I was compulsive. I was distracted. Um, I didn't. It was. It was. It was a bit boring. And um, I, I enjoyed getting. I want to do things. I want to do things. I wanted to get out and actually. My my. I'm a very visual learner. Very experiential learner. I le- I learned through debating things with my advisory board, with my board, with my staff, with my team, with my friends, and that's where I really um, enjoy and interact. YouTube videos weren't a thing when I was a kid, so I couldn't learn through that way. And so by the end of university, I was like, can we please get started now? You know, I want to kind of, but I I held back because all the advice that was given to me was do the safe thing, do the conservative thing, you know, do your university degree, get into a stable job, do your training, do your technical training. And that's 
what I had at this. It wasn't until I started to diversify my circles. It wasn't until I started to move to London and work in technology and, and I met other entrepreneurs that were doing things that I started to go, okay, actually, I, I, I've got to, my gut tells me I should do this. I should, I should do things slightly differently. It's funny, though, I'm looking at you. I've got a son your age. And um, when parents are putting their kids through school and after that, parents are really conscious of um, they know the kids better than the kids know themselves, although the kids think they know themselves better. I'm looking at someone who I think you're pretty intense, but you're holding back. My gut feeling is I'm looking at your eyes. Your brain is going to like a 1,000 miles an hour. But I got a sense of intensity right there. I got a sense of, I don't mean intense Gary Vee style, which probably no one on the old planets is as intense as him. But I did get a sense of um, rapid thinking. I did get a sense of um, activity, like a lot of activity in your head. I, I could feel the energy coming out of you, even though if, I, if anyone could see you s- sitting here now, you don't look that way, but you feel that way. Even now just sitting here listening to me, I can see you thinking at a thousand miles an hour. You've got a whole lot of stuff you want to say. You don't necessarily agree with me. You don't necessarily disagree with me. You've got things going flashing through your head. You're pre- predicting stuff um, about what you want to do, what you want to get out of this interview, what I, you know, like, as opposed to what I want to get out of this interview. So that's your, to me, am I, am I sort of close? Look, you're an empath. I can see that you feel, pick up on energy. I believe um, in the transfer of energy as well. So you're on the right track for sure. And did that, um, because as other people might be listening to this, who might either be that way or they might have kids that way or they might have a partner that way, let's try and understand how we get the best out of people that way because you've obviously got the best out of yourself because you're doing very well now. Um, Let's make this a little bit more instructive to everybody. What was the interaction that maybe the private school was not doing with you? What was the freedom that your parents gave you to make the decision to go to the Catholic school and then go on to do other things? But also, what were the baselines that your family did for you by actually encouraging you to do your degree, encouraging you to build a nice baseline off which you can just jump as many fucking times as you like, as opposed to jumping off no baseline? Am I sort of... Yeah, look, this is important to me. You know why? Because I almost didn't come today because... Um, I can my, feel that. My partner, Florence, is 39 weeks pregnant. Wow. So we, we our due date's on Saturday for our first baby boy. Well, we, and you're still based in Sydney? Based in Sydney, yeah. We live in Bondo Beach. Well, she's going to listen to this. And the, well, actually, what's going to happen She is, said, don't mention me. I said, i got to mention. i got to mention. I'm glad you did. Yeah, because well, it it's gives come me full con- circle now. But it gives me context. And I, and I, I needed context because I'm getting this. I know I can't see below the table, but I know your feet are moving. Oh, that's that's just the. Is that normal? That's just the ADD in me. Yeah. So, do you have ADD? Well, I was diagnosed with ADHD. ADHD. Um, at eight years old, and so that that yeah. Because I have a son, I have four sons, but I have two of my sons are exactly that position. And yeah. The, and they, my older son, my other son, he's still he's still on meds, and probably will be for a long, long time. It's still a controversial diagnosis, right? Hundred percent. Does it exist or does it not? Yeah. I'm very passionate about this um, because it was a big influence on my life. Well, that, I can see it. I can feel it and I can see it. But also, by the way, your success to some extent, I'll fucking guarantee it, has got something to do with your personality and and your alpha waves or whichever the waves are in your brain. Either alpha, beta or gamma. I don't know. I think it's the alpha waves. They're probably just bouncing around. I'll guarantee if we did a, a brain scan on you, 
your 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 some of your brain waves would be a lot deeper than say mine for argument's sake or somebody else in this room now doing this recording. And there's nothing wrong with it. But you've got to learn how to harness it. Uh, that's that's the own point. the energy. That's the point. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you to own it now. That's own because it. You, yeah, because you weren't going to say, you, I didn't feel like you were saying in the beginning, like you were very, you're being right. You're being someone who's been brought up by two professional mum and dad, um, a really responsible family. I guarantee you've got a really good family and um, I can just feel it and you're probably being through the right system. I love systems. you for that. No, but I'm, I'm <laughs> sure and I'm sure your wife's a really good person and you're about to become a dad. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're doing what's proper. So you went and did what's probably went and did a university degree. You took yourself overseas and probably worked for someone overseas and learned a few things. Yeah. But the real guy. Let's bring him out. Let's Because that's, that's who I want to talk to. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's scrape that other shit away, okay? That, that's good, good, respectful stuff. Good boy, good son, good husband, good brother, good student, good, good member of society. But let's see what drives guy. Tell me about him. Yeah, so look, at eight years old, I was diagnosed with ADHD. For listeners, anyone doesn't know, it's attention deficit hyperactive disorder. What that meant for me was a few things. So one, they basically labeled that um, I couldn't concentrate. Um, I was distracted. So basically, I had to identify with that eventually. Um, so they did put me on medication, everything from Ritalin, Ritalin. to the other stuff. And I'll get to that in a second, but... Um, can I, can just for our audience, just explain one thing. ADHD um, basically means you. When it says you can't concentrate, you can concentrate, but You're easily distracted. Easily distracted because you you jump from topic to topic. So I'll give you examples. Yeah. So you, what's really happening in the brain is um, the connections, um, the chemical reactions aren't reaching their endpoint. So you you know you find it hard to finish a book. You read things two or three times. Um, you know you're easily distracted. Um, you've got scatterbrain, right? And so the way we teach students now um, academically and through um, reading, writing, English, maths, all that, it's only really doing certain students well because only certain students learn that way. I wasn't one of those students. I was smart, but I couldn't read as fast as the kids in the top class. So I had to work really hard to keep up. And you also lose interest in things. And so when you lose interest, you become bored, you become distracted, you become naughty. So I was a bit um, misbehaved. But that wasn't the real stuff that really shakes you as a person. When you're a teenager, you're trying to become, who are you? You're trying to become a man. Um, what shakes you is, um, the first thing was the drugs. So the, the, the medicine that you're taking, you, when you're a kid, you don't actually, you can't identify symptoms. And I, I only stopped taking them in university when I went, this is enough. And, um, and, it, was a, and it was an adjustment period, but I actually changed personalities. Because Ritalin, all that stuff, makes you anxious, makes you stressed, makes you agitated, and you become, you know, you become a bit angrier, you know. And when you're going through all these changes as a young man, um, that's that that's difficult. That's difficult. And so, were you aware of it at the time? No, no, no. Of course no. you're not. You're not no. aware of it. You're just taking this thing two or three times a day, or whatever you're doing. Mm. So, so I think there was symptoms that I and I could, and then I would go off it for six months. I pop back on it for like exam periods or whatever, and then. I'd notice a massive change in my personality. So yeah, so your so your bad change, right? So just to, just to be clear to everyone listening, is because you know, we're talking to a, a businessman here who's built a very successful business, and it's not a traditional business, so it requires some sort of left-sided thinking. To be frank with you, 
and it requires someone to pick a problem and create a solution and then obviously execute on it. And sometimes the personality traits in order to do that are the very personality traits you're talking about now as a young man, which you didn't even realize. And what those Ritalins and those various drugs do in the exam periods or whatever time you choose to take them, mm. what they do is they, as I understand it, is um, they allow you to focus and concentrate on topics, whatever it is you're studying. Like a laser. Your laser focus, correct. But they actually have a, they do change your personality. They have other effects on you, especially with testosterone, race and around your system. Anxiousness. Yeah. Agitation. So that, that's what the, these drugs do. They actually allow you to laser focus, but they also have an effect on you. And at some stage, you've decided, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. And I, and I think that's a pretty courageous thing, which is another hallmark of people who do well in business, especially entrepreneurs who actually create their businesses. There's a lot of courage involved. And it's not just about taking a risk. It's making big decisions, big, big calls like leaving their job and um, taking the risk that they won't earn enough or uh, uh, m- moving from one place to another place. In other words, you lose a support group. Or in your case... A good example is you just decided to stop taking these drugs because they weren't really doing making you the right person. Yeah, it wasn't just the effects of the drugs. It's the it's the message society is telling you. You need to take a pill to be normal, and that. And what's normal? What's normal in society? You know, do the right thing. Go to uni. Go to school. To, you know, be respectful. You know, be compliant. Conform. So I spent my I spent my younger years thinking I had to change to fit in. It was only when I got out of my first job and moved to London and met other tech entrepreneurs, they had the same thing going on. They had ADHD, but instead of trying to push it down and 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 keep it down, they actually accelerated it, enhanced it. And that was inspiring to me because they were so self-aware. They knew what they weren't good at, but they really knew what they were good at. And that was and so that's why I call ADHD the entrepreneur's curse. I really think I look for it in people actually and I'm really you know my journey I really want to talk to people that have it because it's important for me to to let them know that it was my kryptonite but it's actually my superpower. So what all the so I told you all the bad things that it, that it, that society tells you is being distracted not being able to concentrate um, all these things but actually um, if you've got ADHD, you've got high levels of energy that you can sustain over long periods of time. So as a kid, when you're burning out other kids, that, that no, no guy, you, you want to play for too long. That's so, sorry. But when you're, when you're in a career, you can work longer. You can um, work harder, more intensely. I've got five half an hour back-to-backs this afternoon, just context switching. Um, I'm happy in chaos. I actually prefer it. Um, I need good structure in the business. We have great people doing that, but I'm I'm good in chaos, like because that's how my mind works. It's so you're the, you're the you're the cutter, and you need sewers behind you, um, which I'm, I always talk about. Um, like my brother and I are diametrically opposed in terms of characteristics or strengths, um, but my brother's the world's best structured person, the world's right. best uh, sewer, and every deal I've ever done since both of us went to both of us went to the same university, both did the same degree. Both has worked at the same law firm initially. Um, he's much younger than me. Um, that was his first job, the, the law firm I was at. And um, but my brother, both come from the same parents, but grew up in the same environments. But his characters, he's a sewer. He's good at structure. He makes sure that nothing drops down between the cracks. Me, I can't do that stuff. Um, but I do know the importance of structure. Like structure for me is king because all my great ideas go nowhere unless they they get executed upon in a structured 
compliant way because society sort of takes away. The societal issue is that society hates chaos generally. Society likes structure because they can they can stop anarchy and all that sorts of things. So otherwise, if everyone were like you and me, the place would be a fucking nightmare because nothing would actually really, really happen because we'd all be doing the same shit. But I, I know what your journey was. The fact that you were able to get through law school or get through a law firm and, and like at a young age move through that stuff and actually sustain it and then work it out, like that's the, th- the commendable thing because our brains aren't wired that way. You know, so it's, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of grit. I, I mean, I'm a chartered accountant, you know, so. I, well, the same, done, the same deal though. So you, it's, you had to go and do your PY or professional year. You had to do the degree. You have to get, you had to go and work in a firm whilst you're doing your professional year. You had to do all the shit work that the, the uh, firm makes now. you do. Yeah. It's three years. Three years these days. Yeah, yeah. It was only one year, I think. I can't remember. But um, so I, I want to just, sorry to the audience here. I mean, we're laboring this, but we're, but we're thinking, talking about something that's really, really important. It's a sort of, um, Guy calls the entrepreneurial curse, but uh, I, would you say that was the word entrepreneur? Well, it's, it's the entrepreneur's curse, but it's only a curse if you make it one. Yeah, it's it's actually the process of being creative is surrounded by lots of energy, um, and, uh, creative energy I'm talking about. And you need to get a topic that you're really interested in or, or a thing you're really passionate about because that's what I'm going to talk about in the second part of this podcast, what you are trying to achieve, what you are really passionate about, what's your goal, your end objective Sometimes people with these conditions, ADHD or just high energy levels, they are the best people to prosecute these things as long as they've got a big tail behind them sweeping everything up. And uh, and I often talk about playing defensively in my playbook, but that's where I come up with the, the, uh, the, the defensive thing is because I know that the reasons why my businesses were successful or those which were successful, I had a great tail at the back of me cleaning everything up as I go. And I, I literally couldn't do anything on my own. I can't even. I can't even run my own bloody diary. We're nothing without the teams. That I can't run my diary. Us. I need someone telling me what I got to do tomorrow morning, like last night. Tell me what to wear. I literally get someone tell me what to wear. What time I got to be there? Uh, Tina here sends me. Who's our producer? She sends me the list of the three things. Gives me the background on everybody. I can't read that last week. I have, must read it the day, like this morning. I don't have the ability to read that. I can't prepare in a week in advance. Yeah. There's a compulsion in me that I can only read it this morning. But I love that you know that so well. It's I'm still learning it um, and I'm still putting in the infrastructure and the environment for me to thrive um, and you, it takes time. you got to trust people. you got to bring the right people in to support you and so it's, it's music to my ears that you do this. And that's, to me, that's what works for me in business and I'm glad you're here today to talk about you, what works for you and I'm glad you're honest enough to tell us straight up what your strength and weakness is at the same time because we've all got a strength yeah. but it's um, equivalent has an equivalent weakness on the other side of it I want to go to the break and then I want to talk to you about this business I want to really talk about what early trade's all about and what's your mission Okay I'm back here with Guy Saxelby and um, his business called Early Trade is that the name, Early Trade? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Of course, it doesn't necessarily tell everybody listening to this what Early Trade does. We're going to get into it. But first, before I get on to what Early Trade does and and your mission, what was the light bulb moment? Like how did you say, where were you working when you, what were you doing when you decided to do this? What were you doing? So I was working in another company. I was working in a- Whereabouts? In London. In the UK? Yeah, in a tech company. 
and we were growing very fast. Uh, our customers were paying us late and that meant a lot of things for us, but mainly for me, I wouldn't get paid my bonuses and our team. Um, and so I developed a barter system to induce our, our large customers to pay us early by offering them discounts. The problem right. was- What were you selling? So it was an ad tech business. So right. we, we, we had built a marketplace for um, that priced advertising a different way. It meant instead of buying an ad based on a website, that it was on. So if you like sports, you're trying to target dads who watch sports. Instead of paying $15 cost per impression for ESPN, you could actually target a pram site that's $1 per impression, but dads still go there. And so it's using data to identify and price advertising. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's another tangent. But basically, uh, I developed this barter system um, that kind of worked a little bit, but um, we could never work out what discounts to price. Keep that in your head. Um, that business got acquired. I had a little bit of equity in that. So that allowed me to step away from the nine to five and actually address this problem of late payments. And when I started researching it, the main solution was a banking solution called supply chain finance. About a hundred year old concept came out of the States. And it's basically where a third party financier steps in and pays your suppliers for you for a discount and then and at the buyer's credit. So I'm looking into this. I went over to see a friend in New York just for the weekend and the aha moment, this is the closest I can get to the aha moment because it's actually a process over a few months of research methodically. But the aha moment was when I went out with my friend who worked in Credit Suisse in New York um, and we went out with his boring bank of friends. <laughs> I love it. We're in the West Village of New York and we got stuck in a blizzard. It was January 2016. It was called Blizzard Jonas. Four people died that weekend because in two hours there was such a heavy snowfall that cars got- Was that, was that January, late January? Late Jan. I was in the same one I was in Chicago. Were you really? And I got stuck in Chicago. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. What? I was supposed to leave the next morning. I came outside from my hotel and the, I'm not joking, the snow was like two meters high outside the hotel and people actually died in Chicago that night on the road. So in New York, all the cleaning staff and hotel staff, they sleep in their cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's, and uh, people were asleep with their heating on. And then in two hours when you're asleep, the snow covers your car and you die from carbon monoxide. That's, that's what people died. That was, that was a big deal, that, that storm. Yeah. Because I was actually in a place yeah. called Lake Zurich, which is in, is in Chicago. And we had a campus there in another business I was involved. I was a chairman of another business. And, uh, and uh, I was just expecting, inspecting the campus. It was a tech business, technology business. And, uh, and they said to him, oh, you better get back, to, back into Chicago, back, back into town, which is like an hour away, because there's a big st snowstorm coming. I'm going, oh, yeah, right, fuck, what are you talking about? Like, I'm from Australia, what would I know? And Sydney especially. And uh, on the way back, we drove back and this snowstorm hit. And um, my guy, one of my staff was driving the car and the windscreen, had the windscreen was. I was getting really nervous because the traffic was banking up really bad. And I started thinking, shit, we're going to get stuck here in this storm and they, you'd hear it on the radio. So I made him stop at the service station. I filled the car with chocolates and <laughs> chips and peanuts and stuff like that. Got back on the road. We slipped off the road a few times. It was pretty scary. Yeah, it was massively and scary. And then I got back to my hotel and I, I all I remember is here, I, I couldn't go to bed. I was listening to the television because, you know, American TV is going on. About people dying. So th th that was a really significant, um, I don't know, uh, weather event. So you're telling me this happened around this time? Yeah, that's right. It's pretty full on. We we had slightly better than you. We got stuck in a pub. So we actually couldn't get out of the pub. I think it was called the White Horse. Um, it was a bit of a um, – there was a lot of uh, bikey, bandito-type people out the front. So, But they cleared off after the blizzard. So, look, I got stuck in a pub with three boring bankers. And this is where 
it's only going to apply to your nerdy audience, but I had a theory based on my experience, which was I can I can negotiate with my customer and I can get cash flow from them faster. You know, and, and so my theory was the way banks lend money is inefficient. Credit-based underwriting is inefficient. Um, and so I was debating with them and these bankers are saying, it's a thousand-year-old concept. You can never get away from it. You have to, you know, you have to analyze their credit and make a call on whether they can repay or not. I said, I don't think we need to do this. I think you guys are the inefficiency. I think the finance industry is the inefficiency. And my my model was, and I debated with them, and as through this through this debate, I worked out this is a real thing. Because if we remove the bank, right? If we remove the bank and we use technology to replace them and have the counterparties, the, the buyer and the supplier, the customer and the supplier transparently negotiate efficiently, you can have money move through the supply chain without needing a third party to lend to it. And so if you agree with that hypothesis, then you work out what the most efficient way to allocate capital is, and that's through a marketplace. And so at that point in time, probably three whiskeys deep, I set about starting this business. And so um, I flew back to London a day late. I said to Florence, we're going to fly you to Australia. I want you to meet my parents. Flew her to Australia. That went well. I'm like, okay, let's go. So, and then fast forward through, I move Florence and me back. We pack up our lives. She quits her job moved back into my parents' home. Now, Florence is thinking, okay, I started going Florence out. Florence is your wife? Florence is my fiance. Fiance, yeah, okay. I started going out with this guy who worked at this fabulous tech company. Now, all of a sudden, he's an entrepreneur, unemployed. Mm. That's what women think when you're starting a business, if you call yourself that. Um, and she's he, English, I presume. She's English, yeah. And he's moved me back in with his parents. In Australia. In Australia. Yeah. And she's going, you know, she's going, what the hell? And so we, we were supposed to be there 12 months. We lasted five. That's not fair to mum and dad. They put us up. Thanks, mum and dad. But we needed our own space. That's tough. Yeah, I agree. That was a challenge in starting it up. But then um, after that, we basically, I basically raised the seed round. I just want to stop you there, guy, because like you're being a bit modest here. So I think the audience needs to hear something because um, one, you established a marketplace. And what you mean by the marketplace is allow um, the person who's selling the goods, in other words, the vendor, the supplier, you call it the supplier, but let's call it the vendor, the small business person. Who might be selling paper or I don't know whatever it is they're supplying to the the other side. Yep. So you you've created a marketplace between the two where they basically, in really simple terms, can work out a deal. So if I buy a, a, a thousand rolls of toilet paper because you know toilet paper is running off the shelves at the moment because of coronavirus, if I go if I deal direct with you, you're the supplier of toilet paper. You you have a little business in the North Shore of Sydney where you actually make toilet paper. Okay. And I got a business where I got I run hotels and I need toilet paper. Okay, good example. So instead of me in the old days going to my bank and borrowing money so um, that I could pay you, and then I would have to pay interest and you'd have to wait until I got all my money. And sometimes I would only part pay or not fully pay you or I pay you in terms. You're saying fuck the bank, Mark. Just come and talk to me direct. And if I you buy a thousand rolls of toilet paper, instead of me selling you for a dollar roll, I might sell it to you for a dollar ninety uh, ninety five cents a roll because I'm happy for you to pay me straight away. I'm more happy to get the money straight away. Is that the sort of basic presumption? And there's a marketplace that you and I know each other, but like normally these people got to, can't connect to each other with each other physically. So you're providing a, a place where they can connect in a digital way. Am I close? Yeah, you're close. You're definitely close. So we, we, we help both sides differently. So we help the suppliers with their cash flow and we do it. We, we essentially, instead of going to the bank, so the toilet paper supplier, instead of going to the bank or going to a factoring company, so that's me. I'm the toilet paper a small supplier. business, right? Um, you can come onto the marketplace 
and make an offer rate, which is a small discount of your choosing. I can make an offer? So I can say 1,000 toilet rolls for 95 cents a roll, no? It doesn't deal with goods. It's no. just with – so any business can use it, but an, you have to have an approved invoice with a large customer. Right. And then it, they're paying you on 30 days. You know, and it's you're saying I don't want to wait thirty days. I want the payment next okay. day. So I put my my right to receive money up on this. You put your trade. You trade in the marketplace. Yep. So if you have a hundred dollar invoice, approved yep. invoice in the system, and you're going, I got staff to pay. I got other supplies to pay. I got tax to pay. I, I can't wait thirty days. I'm going to put a bid of. No, I put an offer and then look for a bid. No, no, no I put an my offer is my bid. Right. So basically, I'm saying I'll give you a fifty cents discount um, if you pay me tomorrow. And that competes with all the other suppliers needing early payment. Right. And so now let's switch to the buyer. So the buyer has cash. The buyer is the hotel in your yep, example. Yep. They're sitting on large cash. Interest rates are at all-time low. They're getting paid 1.5% interest on that cash per year. And so they're looking – and but, you know, they're holding that cash. And, and so they can pay early at a $0.50 cents discount on a $100 invoice in our experience. Sounds, in other and they words, can actually earn – better return on their cash by paying their suppliers yep. early risk-free. So so basically you, the hotel owner, me, the toilet roll supplier, yep. I got an invoice to you. Mm-hmm. So there's an invoice out there for uh, a 1,000 toilet rolls at a dollar each, a 1,000 bucks. Do I put that $1,000 invoice up on uh, up onto the marketplace and someone else can bid for it or how's no, it? No, no, no. There's no third parties there's here. There's no third parties. So it's supply and demand. So the supply. So we basically match a committed supply of working capital so let's say we, we go to the large hotel owners and we say, how much money do you want to make available for the market, for the early payment market? And they'll be they'll say $10 million. $10 million is our supply. That's committed. Then we invite all the suppliers. If you need money, you don't have to use this. This is all supply driven. If you need it, make an offer. And what we'll have often is an over demand and under supply. So $20 million of invoices want to be paid early. There's only $10 million of supply. Of, of working capital to pay that early. And so our job is to kind of be an ASX like and to build trust and allow them to interact and they're, count, they're interacting with one another. So it's many suppliers to one buyer. So you're building like an exchange. That's right. A, a stock exchange for early invoice payment or some other so my, uh, reference. My co-founder and the chief technology officer ran advanced data analytics at the ASX. His name's Piers Simon. So he has basically translated the commercial vision into a real marketplace. And so we've built up a marketplace that has over 36,000 businesses in Australia and New Zealand using it for cash flow. And how do you get to, how do people find out about it? Like, how do you get to both sides of the marketplace? How does the business, early trade, yeah. get to both sides of the marketplace? Do you, do you ring them up or do you op- yeah. invite them in? How do you do it? I can see you're already thinking about go to market. So we, we sign up the large customer first and then they essentially uh, engage us to operate their early payment program on their behalf. And so we're a SaaS business. So the software is our platform that runs the market and then the service is our onboarding service. So we, our team will basically onboard their suppliers, teach them how to use it. But how do you do that? Do you, like, is it literally by phone or just… There's, uh, there's, there's programmatic programmatic right. communication. So you there's reach out electronically and all of them. Emails, there's all sorts of stuff, yeah. LinkedIn campaigns. You have sales desks, so you have um, electronic uh, we reach We don't call out them desks. sales desks, they're service yeah, yeah. desks. Yeah, yeah, but they're, same thing. A lot of our competitors use you know call centers in India or… Yeah, yeah, in America, yeah. very aggressive tactics. Service above all else. We, we we have both. We're unbiased. We're not necessarily working for the customer, but we're also working for the supplier. We're to get them using it in the right way for them. Because you're thirty six thousand users now, both sides or just one side. Well, I mean the that's 
the buyers, there's only about ten of them. Yeah, handful. Yeah, the rest are suppliers. Yeah. So, right. what what do you what comes first, the the buyers or the suppliers, or the money or the the trade? So you got to get you got to, to to start a market. You've got to get the supply established first. Then you get the demand in, and then as the demand increases over the supply, you get you up the supply. And so we're constantly trying to match supply and demand. And it's really interesting watching in the different times of the year where that demand really peaks. Christmas. Uh, so Christmas is our second busiest time. Yep. Really? Um, second busiest. Busiest is June, end of financial year. Right. Everyone wants early payment in June. Yeah. Um, but December is a big period, especially for our clients. We've got a lot of food and beverage and retail clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so obviously they're getting ready for the Christmas period. A lot of... Um, a lot of companies have invested in inventory and they're cash poor at that stage yeah. and so they really need the money. And then in Australia, we have this beautiful cultural thing. I think in Italy, it's like August. But in January, everyone basically shuts up shop fucks off. and goes surfing. That's the period. What, what I want to get out of this is why the fuck are you doing it? I mean, I'm apart from it. It's good business, makes money. It's a challenge. You've got to build all your stack of software and all your solutions and marketplaces and exchanges. That's all pretty cool stuff. But like what's the, the bigger vision or the – uh, the bigger purpose. I mean, why is guy doing this shit? Like, who, who are you trying to look after? Are you trying to look after the left side or the right side? The suppliers. Who are you trying to look after? Are you? Well, the whole economy, to be honest. Um, late payments are. Stop there for a second. Here we go. See, that's what I'm talking about. Big fucking ideas. Here's someone who doesn't mind admitting he's trying to look after the whole economy. You're like, not many too many people will say that. But that's you mean that, don't you? Just the Australian economy and New Zealand economy. I consider us a team. Um, Anzacs. But look, we, we got to do it better. You know, financial services isn't creating efficiencies at the moment. You it's, know why? I'm in it. I'll tell you why, why we're not doing it. We, we pretend we are, but we're, we've interposed ourselves so we can make money. Correct. We actually want the inefficiency. Correct. I mean, this is the old banking system is the oldest trick in the book. I'm going to create a problem for you. Then I'm going to fi- give you the solution. I'm the solution. You know, that's what politicians have been doing. That's where banking came from. That's what's been going for thousands and thousands of years. I don't mind admitting it, right, um, until another better solution comes along, which everybody can understand and accept because we're very binary. We either say we're going to give you the money, we're not going to give you the money. It's pretty easy for everyone to understand. Mm. Unfortunately, the greater population only understands because they're busy doing their own business or whatever the reason is, they understand a binary solution. Your solution is a bit more complex, mm. so you need a different type of thinker. And it's a big education program. But I just want to quickly come, to come back to why you're doing it, apart from you want to look after the economy. What's your... I mean, you want to help small business, business generally. What what's your deal? Yeah, look, small business is big for us because um, they're the most vulnerable part of the sector, and so they've got to be protected and they've got to have a means of getting cash flow early because that's the biggest reason they fail. But is that just the market you've identified, or is that something you altruistically want to help out? I mean, why and why do you want to help them out? Oh, look, so absolutely. So we've been, I've been consulting with Kate Carnell's team at the Australian. Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman. I'm going to Canberra next month. I've been invited down to talk to our ministers there. You know, this is a huge topic going on, late payment to small business. But why you? Why do you want to do it? I mean, it is a huge topic. And, and it's a broke, we live in a broken economy. I'm sick of banks taking all the upside away from other people coming through. And Where's so, the kid? Where's Guy when he sort of looked at the broken system that he was involved in? Is this parlaying into what you're doing today? You're saying, fuck this, I'm going to fix this problem? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Late payments are 3% of GDP every year and it's a productivity tax. If I don't pay you on time or if I don't pay you early, you're not going to be able to invest, grow your business. So this is a big problem. We can help the entire economy be more productive and be more competitive. But what drives you to do it? Why? Why? 
Is it because it's broken? You want to fix it? Or? Look, you, you know, you got to. I want to prove. I want to prove I can do it. I want to prove we can do it. Um, our business, and I, I certainly want to. You know, maybe maybe you could even go as far as saying I want to prove to all those doctors a kid who's diagnosed with ADHD can do it. Can do what? Can create um, massive value for our country um, and make our country more competitive and productive. So what's the big problem, mate, that you've identified? What You just tell me what's your solution and what's the problem right now. If you – what is Guy Saxelby today sitting here? What's the problem you've identified and what do you want to fix? Well, the problem is late payments – from large companies to small companies, essentially create a productivity tax on our economy. So the entire economy is slower and less um, productive with this. We have developed our solution is a market-based solution. So it's sort of like a carrot and we're working with the government agencies to help them with their stick. But carrot and stick need to work together and they need to regulate as well. But our view is, you know, I believe in capitalism you know, and and it basically, we, if we can create a solution where it makes companies interact and move money through the supply chains very efficiently, then everyone's going to be more efficient, able to get cash in and grow the economy. And what you're trying to do is exit all the profit takers that sit in the between in the middle. Well, yeah, we will do that. Technology is just so much more efficient than any of these factoring businesses or any of these lenders. And so, as the market grows, I used to be worried about the banks replicating. I'm not anymore because our network is so big. No one can replicate our network in this country, in this in this ecosystem in Asia Pac. And so it's just going to outgrow. It's just going to keep growing. Um, and the more and more people use it, the, the lower the rates will get and the more efficient it will be for everyone. So if I was a bank, you know what I'd be doing? To, and if you were taking market share from me, taking something away from me, I'd say I'd go and buy him. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so it's defi- that's a good issue to raise. Um, we're not done yet. I'd be silly to sell now. Um, in terms of value? Uh, absolutely in terms of value, but also I want to have a crack, a red hot crack at actually making real change, not just we're an R&D house. Australia is an R&D house for US. We cram up with great, we've got great inventors and then we sell out for, you know. Money. A few hundred million yeah, yeah. and then they make a few hundred billion. Hmm. So, you know, it's not, we're not done yet. We need, we're not going to sell. So this bloke, you want to have a good red hot crack in a typical Australian way, so your wife will be really happy, especially at 39 weeks pregnant. You want to have a red-hot crack at making a fucking difference for the future. Yeah. For small business, business just generally. Absolutely. Everybody. Why not? you got one question to ask me. What is it? So I wanted your advice from a business standpoint on um, what you thought about your experience with IPO and, you know, why you decided to do that and why you decided to list and, you know, do you have any advice? I'll give it to you straight up. The decision of IPO is based on the capital markets at the time. I IPO'd in 2010. The reason I did is because there was no capital markets. There's no private money around. The public money was around. If I had my choice today, I wouldn't list. Listing is a real challenge. It is particularly hard today with the regulatory environment. You spend million, million and a half just because you listed extra every year. No value to a customer or to me or anybody, to systems. Um, so it's just compliance stuff. I would say that you're better off not being listed if you can get the money from two or three others or, in fact, one other. If that's your only choice, then list. And at that time, that was my only choice because everybody retreated from the markets because of the GFC. So all the high net wealths and the, the small funds that used to invest in organisations like me, they just retreated from the marketplace. So I took the IPO route. And there was another more complex reason there because Channel 9, who was coming on board as a shareholder, at that time was owned by a big hedge fund who needed to have in order for them to invest in me, needed to have um, liquidity. So they, I had to put 
their share into a marketplace mm. in the ASX. So that's the reason I did it. Hindsight, well, I would do the same thing again. But um, could you ever go private? We could, we could, we could go private. But to, to go private, I'd either have to make a bid or someone else have to make a bid, and then there'll be people who will say they'll hold out for a different sort of number. So it's messy. Mm. But in due course, that would be my preference is to go private. But that, I'm not talking about as chairman of the company. I'm talking my as a shareholder in the company. I would like to take this business private. You hear that a lot. You know, you hear people like Elon Musk saying the same thing. You look at private market money. There's a lot of it around. There's a lot of cheap money around looking for a home. So it's pretty flush. The question is, is it here, here sitting here in Australia or do yeah, we have absolutely. to go to offshore to get it? No, no, no. There's a lot of it here. It's about aligning with the right people. I'm talking about big amounts of liquidity from investors that can actually help you, that have the pattern recognition to understand what you're building. They bring more than just the money. It's all about more than just yep. the money. It's yeah, all totally. about, and long, and you know, I'm quite passionate. We we never raised from VCs. We actually did eventually raise from VC, but that was because they were so different to Shearwater Growth Equity, our investor, our main investor. They run their own money. They've got a lot of their own money. They've been very successful and they run their own. So they don't have a limited partnership. So that means that they're very aligned to the vision of the founders and they're long-term investors. Then they don't need to repay their limited partners every five to seven years. So the, the, these liquidity, and we're well, going to have to finish off. But the, what you're talking about here is for those people listening is that a lot of these investors and/or let's call them partners, they have liquidity periods. They have events that make them ask for the back. money back. Yeah, they have to pay back the partners. They have the to investors. pay some back. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that and that de- that's a conflict of interest because yeah. that means that they may. I'm not saying they do, but they may need to artificially engineer a liquidity event to get the money back. Whereas you've got people running their own money. They don't necessarily need to do that. So you can continue. We're here to stay. So we've got a long-term vision. We're not. Which we refer to as patient capital. So it's always better to get patient capital. Correct. Guy, fantastic. I actually really enjoy the fact that you were prepared to be open enough to tell us what drove you in the early days. And uh, because there's a lot of people out there think the same thought patterns. Mm. There's nothing wrong with ADHD. I mean, I, I don't know why they even call it ADHD or whatever the hell they call it. It's just people think differently. Everyone's got a different thought process. We're all wired differently. Just there's a greater number of people in one universe who think a certain way in, in terms of pattern thinking. And there's another, there's three or four other outliers out there. But we're all part of one really big universe of how we all think. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with it. And I fucking hate the fact that society has uh, created these groups and sort of earmarked them for special attention because it's just bullshit. Can I just say one thing as we sign off? I'm going to keep saying this so you hear it more. If you're a kid with ADHD, just know that you have a competitive, you have innate competitive advantage on everyone else and you are much better suited to being an entrepreneur. You've got to have a lot of other things that, that line up, but you have a natural competitive advantage. It's a strength. It's a superpower. So, you, so think about it that way. Don't think about it as an abnormality. I love that. It's a good way to finish yourself. Thanks very much, Guy. My pleasure. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.